Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're right on the verge of uh, Rosh Hashanah, and we're finishing up the year. And, um, you know, in, in, in Torah, the way the, the sages uh, have made the calendar, and, and time itself, it's, it's worth just sort of reflecting on, on all these things. And then I just want to zero in on a question that kind of popped into my head on Shabbos, because it's, it's the last Shabbos. You know, just, I don't know if any of you guys can relate to this, but... Um, summer camp, I remember uh, at sleepover camp that, that um, when, when it was winding down, people would be saying, this is the last lunch, and this is the last time we're going to be doing that. And, you know, I went to a co-ed camp, and the, the girls especially got very emotional, and they would cry over, this is our last trip to the canteen, and, and I hated summer camp. <laughs> And I was thinking, it's the yeah, it's the last. I can't. I gotta get out of here, you know. And it's it's so anyway. But there is this sense of like emotionally marking the lasts, and and so um, so there's there's a lot to it. And so this this sort of thing popped into my head on Shabbos, which is what is the last letter of the Torah that we're going to be reading in the year. So let me just clarify the question. Not what's the last letter of the Torah. That's a Lamed in the word Yisrael, Israel, which is very interesting that that's the last word of the Torah. Because if you, I won't go into too much depth here, but just to shorthand the idea, those of us familiar with the concept of Tzimtzum, it's sort of like all of creation boils down to this last word, you know? That's, that's an interesting concept in and of itself, especially when you factor in the first Rashi. But anyway, that's all shorthand for those of you who are plugged into that stuff. But anyway, let's get into what the last letter of the calendar year is. All right? And before I go into that for a moment, because it's, it's kind of interesting what that, what that yields and kind of what that says about what, what our attitude should be. Um, but before we get into that, let's just do a quick overview, a quick reminder of what the Jewish nature of time is. Because we don't really see it um, as a linear thing. Meaning to say, you start off at A, and then you journey toward B. Okay? But rather, time, as we understand it, is like a, a, a spiral. Meaning to say that you're kind of going around in ever greater circles... And you're circling back through very key moments. So, just to kind of reset the visual for a moment, imagine like a geyser. And a geyser is going up. And in this, in this sense, there are several very key geysers in time and space in, in, our, in our calendar. And they're just shooting up this amazing um, flow and energy uh, and, and openings. And as we circle through the year, at certain points, we hit those geysers again, those flows, those moments. Okay, so hopefully that's, that's clear. If you can just sort of imagine, again, these, these things going up, and then we're circling through them. We're spiraling them through them. And just the point is this, that when we get to um, a holiday, let's say um, Rosh Hashanah, for instance, um, just to pick one, that we're not celebrating... You see, if you imagine a linear notion of time, you know, you're, you start out at A and you're journeying toward B. Then, if you're talking about Rosh Hashanah, what you're doing is you're celebrating 
the anniversary of something that happened a long time ago. You see now, but the Jewish concept is something radically different actually. It's that this energy of creation, this initial energy of creation, or to switch the topic, Pesach, this initial energy of freedom, or Yom Kippur, this initial energy of forgiveness, is shooting through all of time. And so when you, like a spiral, when you circle back into it, you're not just celebrating the anniversary of something that happened a long time ago, you're re-entering that same flow, which is eternal. So in other words, you're actually entering into the original day itself. You're not remembering an old day that happened a long time ago. You're back in it. So that's, that's very cool, actually. And that's, that's an amazing thing. You know, that's a totally different way of looking at things. So, so with that in mind, Rosh Hashanah is the beginning. That's the beginning. Now, just, just to be clear, because people confuse this point, and it's important just to have it straight in your heads. Rosh Hashanah is not the day that the world itself was created. It's the sixth day of creation, the day that human beings were created. And since human beings were the purpose of creation, right, and God is making us partners with him to get to the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, which is the great fixing. That's the, that's the ultimate finishing of all of creation. So God, so to speak, did it in miniature, did sort of like put it in put it in the DNA of creation, the original timeline, in other words, the six days of creation, and then Shabbos, the Sabbath, right? And now we're acting it out on the macro level. It's been implanted in the DNA of all of creation, and now we're going through it and realizing it, and human beings with God together are now bringing about the great Shabbos, the day that will be all Shabbos, the day of fixing the Messianic period, right? Mashiach. So that's... That's, that will be the completion of all creation. So God, so to speak, does it, and now we actually do it with Him together. Right? In a, in a real way, on this, on this plane that we exist in right now. Okay. Hopefully that's clear. And by the way, just as a PS, but something to understand, Shabbos, the seventh day, the, the Sabbath, Shabbat, however you want to say it, the seventh day is not like the other six days. You see, and the... the piece of imagery that always kind of comes into my head, I don't know if I heard this or maybe Rabbi Wine said this, I'm not sure, but you have, um, imagine a carpet that's being uh, a rolled up carpet and you're unfurling the carpet. You kind of just give it a push and you roll it out. So that's the first six days of creation. In other words, the first six days are made out of the same fabric of time and space. But Shabbos, the seventh day, is actually an independent creation that God made. It's a separate creation. It's not just another day, and God rested on that day, and God sanctified that day. It's more than that. It's a separate creation. Okay? So, it's just something to have in mind. That's the Messianic period. Okay? Um, Which, again, God implanted in creation from the very outset. So, So, now, should we get to the last letter? Let's let's talk about let's talk about the last letter, all right? So, so it's kind of a, it's it's a bit of a trick question because on Shabbos, the the very last letter 
is uh, the last letter this year was in Parshas Vayelech. We did Nitzavim and Vayelech together. And the last uh, letter was a mem, to mom. Okay, that was the last word. So, it's a mem. Okay, that's, that's interesting. You could say a lot of things about it, uh, about it being a mem. But let's, let's, let's keep on going for a moment. Because the truth is, is that we read the Torah again at Mincha, and we read another Parsha. We, re- we read from Hazinim. And so if you really want to talk about what's the last letter of the Torah that we read on Shabbos, well, we've got to factor that in. because that's And also we're going to read that on Monday. And so that will be the last letter of the one that we, that we read during the year. So what's that letter? Okay. And that letter um, is a Reish. Okay, so we have... The last two letters, really, that we read of the year, it's a mem and it's a resh. And I was thinking, okay, so what's the significance of that? So, so the last two letters, the last two letters of the Torah that we read during the year are resh and mem. And that can be arranged a couple of different ways. You see, because it spells very significantly, it spells two different words. One is mar, and mar means bitter. And the other is ram, and ram means exalted and elevated. So, very strikingly, it's a question of how are you combining these letters? And in a very deep way, the Chernobyl Rebbe talks about this, I believe the Ramban talks about this, and so this is a whole separate subject. Maybe, uh, God willing, we'll get into it um, next year. But just the concept itself is fascinating, which is that Hashem is constantly directing the letters Yud and Zion at us. All right, This is a whole separate subject. But nonetheless, just the concept that letters are coming at us at all times, and what we do with them, and how we're combining them, and what use we're making of the energy that's being made available to us is, is, very, is very fascinating. So with that in mind, let's return back to this idea that the last letters of the Torah that we're reading, Resh and Mem, spell either Mar, Bitter, or Ram, Exalted. Now, listen to this. Because it's, it's, it's weird that, that we've got actually a practical application of that thought. Like, that thought should just sort of like exist on a meteor somewhere. You know what I mean? Just sort of like floating in outer space. The fact that we've got a grounded example, a practical example of this in use, is just, uh, I'll have to try to make sense of this later. But we have holidays in all of the Jewish months of the year, with one exception, and that's the month of Cheshvan. Okay? That's the month after Tishrei. And our sages tell us that Cheshvin will be the month that the third Beis HaMikdash, the third Holy Temple, which is sort of, you know, indicative of the ultimate fixing of the world, that that will happen, that dedication will happen during the month of Cheshvin. So in other words, there's a slot open for another holiday for Cheshvin, and that's what it's going to be. Now, when you announce the months of the year, and you say a special prayer that this should be a blessed month. You say it on the Sabbath before the, the month arrives. We call it Birkat HaChodesh. We announce the month of Cheshvan in the following way. In, in 99% of the places around, uh, around the Jewish world, we say, we, we call the month Mar Cheshvan. That's Mem Reish, Mar Cheshvan. 
which means the bitter month of Cheshven. You know, because it doesn't have a holiday in it. It's the only month without a holiday in it. Okay, but Reb Shlomo, my Rebbe, has a minig that's done by the, the Karlovach Minyanim uh, congregations around the world, where, we, where his practice was to announce the month of Cheshven, Ram Cheshven. <laughs> he would reverse the letters of Reish and Mem and call it Ram Cheshven, the elevated month of Cheshven. In other words, it was a prayer for Cheshven that we should already see its greatness should become manifest already. That was the intention behind it. So, so this notion, this notion that Hashem, so to speak, is leaving in our hands what we're going to make with the energy of the year, of the coming year, of the previous year. You know, I had, I remember, I had a, a great friend, uh, uh, Oliver Shalom, he left the world too quickly, and at one point he said to me, he said, you know something, he says, you're, you're different from, from me. He, I, never, I never forgot this phrase. He said, you have euphoric recall. And I was like, I didn't know what that meant exactly. <laughs> he said, you just, you, you remember the good things. You know? And so this idea of Ram versus Mar coming at the very end of the year, how we're ending the year, how we're going into the next year, this sort of attitudinal reality check in terms of how we're looking at things is, is, is not just going forward, not just going forward, but also going back. What, what are we remembering? What are we doing with, with, with that sort of um, mental activity? You know something, there's something very beautiful in the beginning of the davening, we go through the korbonos, which was the, the offerings that we'd bring to the Holy Temple. And uh, one of the things that we did was, uh, you know, there was a, 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 an offering that would burn on the, on the altar all night. And in the morning, the, the kahanim would take the ashes from that offering and they would gather it up because they were sort of cleaning up the Mizbeach, the altar. And they would take it and they would put it in a special place. And we read about that in the mornings. And I'll just, uh, I'll just quote it to you. It says that, this is from, if you want to look it up, Vayikra 6, 1 through 6. So this is uh, Leviticus, uh, the beginning of Leviticus. It says, Then he should remove his garments and don other garments. Then he should remove the ashes to the outside of the camp, to a pure place, to a makum tahor. And uh, I heard something very amazing uh, from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Ishvitzer Rebbe. He said that, that, that ashes are a distillation of something. Because if you think of it, if you, if you burn something, the only thing that's left really are the ashes. So in that sense, the the ashes are like, if you, if you experience something, now we're talking a bit metaphorically right now, but if you experience something, your memory of the event, so to speak, is the ashes. That's the distillation. That's what you carry with you. That's what remains after the event itself is over. And so you have to take the ashes, you have to take your memories of these moments that happen to us in our lives. And you have to put them in a pure place. 
You have to keep them in your heart. You know, like, so in talking about this whole notion of euphoric recall, right? If something good happens to you, remember that thing. <laughs> remember that thing. You know, it's, it, this is a treasure. You're supposed to hold on to it. You're supposed to hold on to it. And, you know, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite lines in the, in the whole sitter, we say it, um, it's called Nishmas Kol Chai, one of the great, awesome uh, poems. I almost said liturgical poems, but then I would have had to punch myself in the jaw. Um, and it's, uh, it's right before Chakras on Shabbos. We say it once a week, and it's, it's sort of like a, it's a, it's a, it's a treasure. We say it right before Barakum. And, you know, just in terms of talking about euphoric recall, right? So, to you alone we give thanks, where our mouth is full of the song as the sea, and our tongue is full of joyous song as its multitude of waves, and our lips is full of praise as the breath of the heavens, and our eyes as brilliant as the sun and the moon, and our hands as outspread as eagles of the sky, and our feet as swift as hinds, we could still not thank you sufficiently, Hashem our God and God of our fathers, to bless your name, for even one of the thousands, thousands, thousands of thousands and myriad, myriads of favors that you perform for our ancestors and for us. So, I mean, it's like, by the way, I, I need someone to do the math on that because I, I want to know how many zeros that is. That's like, that's a crazy number of zeros. I mean, it's probably in the trillions or, or more. Of, of, of like incredible things God has done for us, you know? So, so a lot of us, if you think about it, I heard Rabbi Green say one time that 99% of life is in your head in terms of just your attitude being so important. He said another time that the most valuable piece of real estate in the universe is between your ears, you know? So, so in other words, how we think about things, how we remember things, is often who we actually are. So in order to, to cultivate, you know, being like someone who's really kind of like in tune is so important, and that's work that we, we can do in ourselves. All right. So now, let's talk a little bit more about Rosh Hashanah itself. So, Rosh Hashanah, you see, Rosh Hashanah is a beginning. And... And the truth is, and we've been talking about it the last few weeks, I heard from Rabbi Shlomo in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that the word Breshis, the first word of the Torah, often translated as in the beginning, actually means with beginnings. And what that means is, is that God literally created the world out of beginnings. Which means that every single moment is a beginning. So if every single moment is a beginning, then, then what's the value of Rosh Hashanah? So you say, Rosh Hashanah is the beginning. But, but I have to live with the reality, if I want to live in reality, I have to live with the reality that every single moment is a beginning. So then what's special about Rosh Hashanah? 
So this is something that I've been thinking about for a while, and, and I ran this thought by a few big rabbis, and they, they seem to like it, so I guess it's rabbinically approved. Um, so Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of all the beginnings. You see, that's, and that's, 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 that's interesting. It's the beginning of all of the beginnings, which means that on Rosh Hashanah, with our davening, what we can do is we can line up all of the beginnings that are about to unfold over the next year. And we can dedicate all of the beginnings that are about to come our way toward a specific goal, toward a purpose. Now that's an amazing, that's an amazing gift. That's an amazing gift. You know, to be able to, you know, in politics, and even debating, whatever it is, to be able to set the agenda is a very powerful tool. Because then they're arguing your case. Like, just uh, kind of like a, a historical kind of bit in, in Jewish history. You know, you have the Hasidim, and then you have the people who oppose them, the Misnagdim. Right? So that means those who are against. Hasidim means the pious ones, the righteous ones. So, so, so let's just revisit the two sides. You have the pious ones, and those who are against the pious ones. Now, any guess who gave the label to both of the camps? <laughs> the Hasidim called themselves the Hasidim. <laughs> and they called the people against them, those who are against the righteous ones. It's kind of, I mean, it's, it's kind of humorous if you think about it, in terms of setting the, setting the agenda, right? That influences the discussion, because from now on, who are you? Oh, you're the ones who are against the righteous ones. That's, that's the side you're on. Now, now where, are your, where do your sympathies lie? You know, it's really, you know, so, so in other words, what we can do on Rosh Hashanah is we can set the agenda for ourselves we can, influence the, we, we can influence what happens, not just in terms of prayer, but in terms of literally sculpting reality. That's, that's where it becomes like very far out and, and like very, very important what we're doing on Rosh Hashanah. You see, because God is looking to us also. How seriously are you taking this opportunity? Because there's a bit of a what we call Nida Kineged Nida, which means that God looks to us how much we're putting in. In other words, you see, it's a person will get a very weird and incorrect notion of what it means to be alive, what it means to live in this world, what God is, what the Torah is saying. If a person thinks that God is so lofty that he's beyond and he doesn't care and these are all nice ideas. God cares. God takes us very seriously. God takes the world very seriously. God himself is not in a bad mood. Doesn't mean taking seriously means that he's a stern... That's, That's not what it is. But we're here for a reason. And to the extent that we're acknowledging and investing in what the actual game plan of creation is, that's meaningful. That means something. And so in terms of how seriously we're taking it, then God takes us and our desires 
and our dreams for the world, and our dreams for the fixing of the world more seriously. So in other words, it's sort of like, if, imagine you want to influence some change on the chamber of commerce of your, you know, of your local, you know, burg, right? Like, and imagine you're not on the chamber of commerce committee and you never show up to any of the meetings, right? When the chamber of commerce meets, they're not going to take your opinion that seriously because you're not investing in it. You're not showing that you're actually interested in it in a meaningful way. So, so that's, that's us. What happens is on Rosh Hashanah, by really like taking care of this opportunity, what we're doing is we're literally molding, imagine clay, we're really molding all of the beginnings that are about to unfold over the course of the year. And we're predisposing ourselves towards success because we're giving ourselves this head start. Now, there's a very powerful teaching in the Gemara that says that in the way a person wants to be led, that's the way the person is led. Okay? And that's why this month leading up to uh, Rosh Hashanah, Elul, the Sefer Yetzirah, the book of creation, says that the special quality of this month, the special power of this month, is action. That's what needs to be rectified. Because, you know, it's interesting. Someone pointed out to me one time that the name for God in, in, in Hebrew is actually a verb. Because it boils down in, in our mindsets, words are good, thoughts are good, but action itself is the bottom line. The thing that separates the men from the boys, so to speak, is to what extent are you acting on what you think is nice, right? Because that, this is the realm, Kabbalistically, in terms of sort of the cosmic map, we dwell in a dimension called Olamasiya, and that means the world of action. And so, the currency of this dimension is actual deeds. And so, significantly, before Rosh Hashanah comes, before the beginning of all beginnings comes, God looks to us, where are you holding on a bottom line level? Where are your actions right now? Because that will be the sum total of really who we are. Now, having said that, having said that, I want to balance it with another teaching, which is not going to contradict it, but just give you a broader context, okay? Which is a very important critical teaching from the Baal Shem Tov, who says, where is a person, where is a person, right? A person is where his thoughts are at. Okay, so that's not, so is it action or is it thoughts? Well, they're different teachings. They don't contradict each other. But they're both, they're both significant. In other words, what a person desires and what a person is aiming for is also a very crucial aspect of defining who they are. Right? So, so all of these things have to be taken in the proper context. To aspire to greatness is very, 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 very meaningful. But at the same time, everything goes by the end. The one who completes the deed. So these two teachings have to be balanced. 
These two teachings have to be balanced. They're not in contradiction to each other. I heard a rabbi say just recently something interesting, that whenever you have conflicting teachings, that within the proper balancing of the two lies holiness. Right? So, so anyway. So I want to continue to discuss these ideas. I saw in the, from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, something very interesting. And this will kind of give us kind of an overview of creation. And uh, kind of like just the whole, the whole structure of the universe. And then hopefully we'll do this Rashi. Please remind me. I'm sure I'll forget to say it. So remind me after we do this to do the Rashi, okay? So, so anyway... There's 54 Parshas. Is it 54? 53, I think. Is it 53? Maybe it's 53? I don't know. No, no, no. It's, uh, it's 54. So there's 54 Parshas in the, in the Torah. And Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, the word Gan is 53. That's the Gematria 53. Gan, as in the Garden of Eden, is 53. And then we have 54 Parshas. Now, the Lubavitcher Rebbe points out that, as we did this year, significantly, the Parshas of Nitzavim and Vayelech are read together. So really, they're kind of like twin Parshas. And that's additionally significant because this year was a leap year, so when you have a leap year, that means you have an extra month. And when you have an extra month, that means that you don't have to read two Parshas the same Shabbos. So basically, every Shabbos gets its own Parsha. And yet, even in a leap year where every Parsha gets its own Shabbos, here, this last Shabbos, we double up Nitzavim and Vayelech. So you see really in a very meaningful way how they're really considered more or less one Parsha. Okay, so if that's the case the 54 Parshas of the Torah really become, in practice, 53 Parshas, right? Which is the Gematria of Gan, which correlates with Gan Eden, with the Garden of Eden. Now, a very important way of, of, of understanding reality is to understand that whatever exists below has a correlation with something above. So if it exists below, there's a heavenly equivalent to it above. And so, and that's the, that's the spiritual essence of the thing. And so every mitzvah has a body and a soul. So you have the essence of the mitzvah, and then you actually have the, the physical, sort of material um, presence of the mitzvah. Something that's kind of cool, like for instance, let's say tzedakah. So in giving charity. So, so tzedakah, the, the, the body of the mitzvah, would be the check or the dollar bill or the coin, right? That would be the body of the mitzvah. And then, but the soul of the mitzvah would be the intent that you put into it and all the good things that result from your giving that tzedakah. Okay, so that would be the soul of the mitzvah, just to give one example. Now, the Baal Shem Tov says something really unbelievable, which is that if you look at the, the way you give tzedakah, that it actually spells out the name of Hashem. 
And you have to kind of picture this. But if you hold, let's say you're holding a coin, right? A coin is very small. That's like the letter Yud, right? And you're holding it in your hand. Your hand has five fingers. That correlates with the letter He. So in your hand you have a Yud and a He. When you give the tzedakah, you extend your arm. That makes the letter Vav. And then you put that in someone else's hand, which is the letter He. So you have the coin, which is the letter Yud, your hand, which is holding it, which is the letter He, your arm, which is the letter Vav, and the other person's hand, which is the letter He. So when you give tzedakah, you're actually spelling out the name of God. So that's, that's like a far-out example of the soul of the mitzvah, right? This sort of like, because God is... What's God doing all day? On some level, He's giving tzedakah all day, right? Because He's just giving life. Just sustaining creation. That's, that's tzedakah, you know? So, so, so by giving life, you're also doing that. So that's the essence. That's the essence. The soul of the mitzvah. Okay. So now let's just sort of like visit the, kind of like the, just like the, the, the structure of the universe. Let's just take, look at the map of the universe for a moment. So, just like you have a Garden of Eden down below, you also have a Garden of Eden on high. And, and so this Gan, this upper level Gan, we said, Gan, remember, correlates with the gematria of the entire Torah itself. This upper level Gan is the Torah itself. Now it says in the Torah that the Garden of Eden, that the four rivers flowed from the Garden of Eden. So that's like, and they named the Euphrates and all these rivers that are here. They're on the map. Right? But what is the heavenly equivalent of this? So you have this upper Garden of Eden, which is the Torah. And these four rivers that flow from the upper Garden of Eden are the four worlds of Atsilus, Yitzir, Berea, and uh, this dimension, uh, you know, this dimension of, you know, Asiya. So, so basically, you have the Torah, and from the Torah is flowing the dimensions of the world coming down into this physical plane. So now, there's a great teaching which says this in a different way, which is that the word mitzvah Mitzvah, the last, two, the last two letters of the word mitzvah are Vav and He, which are the last two letters of the name of God, right? The first two letters of the word mitzvah are Mem and Sadi. And using the system of letter transposition that's in Gomorrah Shabbos, Kuf Dalet, called Apash, right? Where you flip over the letters, you take the first 11 letters and the next 11 letters and you can exchange them and it's a whole other portal into other dimensions of understanding the Torah. Mem and Sadi in Atbash are the letters Yud and He. So the word mitzvah actually spells out the name of God. But the upper regions, the Yud and the He, right? You have to flip them over because they're already like in these spheres that are like heavenly spheres. <coughs> And then they come down in the form of the physical reality of the mitzvot, the actual commandments of the Torah itself. So, so what are we trying to say here? What I'm trying to show you here 
which is just a very, very important breakthrough that everyone just has to understand if they want to live in reality, is that this is condensed spirituality that we dwell among. We live in a dimension of condensed light. That's what this is. That's what this is. And it's the light of the Torah itself. And that what God does is, God has an idea, so to speak. He has a dream. Remember what Reb Shlomo said about what the, what the Ten Commandments are. They're God's dreams for humanity. And that when we keep them, we're dreaming God's dreams and we're praying God's prayers. So what God has is this exalted, incredible concept in his mind and that what we get to do is act them out on a physical plane. So, so with this in mind, Rabbi Green was just, I just saw him on Sunday and he was saying, I forgot the name of the rabbi he was saying it in. He said that a person can have a great spiritual insight, right? And be 100% wrong. That the truth is actually the complete opposite of what they're saying. And the example that he gave was, someone gave him to this very big rabbi and said, you know, you know, God makes sheep, and on the sheep he puts wool, and from the wool you make tzitzis, right? Like the strings for your four-cornered garment. And isn't that incredible? And the rabbi said, no, you, you got it all wrong. God first made tzitzis. <laughs> he had the idea of tzitzis. And then he made sheep who have wool so that we can make tzitzis. In other words, the paradigm of the mitzvot themselves, that came first. And what God did was he created a physical plane for us to be able to interact and realize the mitzvot in our own lives. But deeper than that is this concept that one shouldn't think that you have materialism or the material, whatever that is, and you should have, and you have the spiritual, and that the spiritual is like some kind of other idea. Like, to me, the big joke is when someone tells me they're not spiritual, it's like, dude, you're made out of spirituality. That's all you are. What do you mean you're not spiritual? That is literally all that you are. So, so with that in mind, it's very important that we see that the realm that we live in is the confluence, the convergence of the spiritual and the material. And that as such, we exist within godliness. We exist within godliness. Now, I promised that I would say over this Rashi. See, it's, it's kind of funny because I've been talking about this for the last period of time. It's been a very meaningful idea to me. And, and now I see it's, it's in the Torah itself. It's, 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 it's not like just kind of like example that occurred to me, but actually uh, it's, Moshe was, beat me to the punch on this one. <laughs> and, uh, and here it is. You see, let me just say it in my own words first, and then you'll, 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 you'll hear it in the Torah, and, and Rashi will explicate it. Um, 
You see, one of the catchphrases, I don't hear it as much as I used to, but one of the catchphrases of this generation is, that's so random. And I think also, we've discussed this, I'll just say it in two seconds. One of the kind of uh, sociological impacts of moving from historically monarchies to democracies today is the notion that there is no one truth. That, that the, the power is with the people, and whatever the people say, you know, you're right, and you're right, and you're right, and you're right. So, these two concepts of randomness, and there's no actual truth, but just whatever anyone decides on their own is the truth. These things have done a, a great amount to really diminish the fact that we actually exist within a very coherent structure. You know, I mean, it's sort of like, if you're looking at, say, a cup, you know, and someone wants to call it a duck, you know, like Reb Shlomo would say, it's sweet and it's cute. You can call it a duck. You can have your own word for it or whatever it is, but it's actually a cup. You know, like the Gomorrah would then say, okay, you call that a duck, then what do you call a duck? <laughs> right? The, the, the Gomorrah is very unsparing in terms of its logic. It doesn't let people get away with things. You know, they just kind of just keep on chasing you down until you're actually cornered and have to either admit that you're wrong or that you've got some kind of solution to it, right? So, in other words, you can call whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, but ultimately it is what it actually is. So, the point that I'm getting to is that we live in a very coherent structure. Now, what's so... By, by that I mean, the cosmos themselves are very stable. Now, you'll say, well, you know, we got meteors and asteroids and black holes will suck in a planet. But you've got to understand, we've got trillions. We've got trillions of astral bodies, right? Like someone, I just heard someone say, I haven't confirmed this, but the thought itself is so outrageous to me, I can't even, my mind can't even comprehend it, which is that there are more heavenly bodies, meaning planets, stars, asteroids, galaxies, whatever it is, than, than grains of sand on the earth. Now that means that the heavens are ridiculously, ridiculously large. Ridiculously large. And if you think of all that's going on up there, and the fact that with these huge gravitational pulls, and that they're not smashing into each other, and that the universe doesn't just all get sucked up into all the black holes, and that it just kind of like, you can chart the stars, and of course, you know, I can tell you with confidence when the sun is going to set, and I can tell you exactly when this constellation is going to rise up in the sky, and we've been doing it for thousands of years. I mean... And on the subatomic level, that, that atoms and all the things within atoms, and we keep on finding new subatomic particles, that all of these things actually are like, you know, like, I, I heard something, and again, I, is this 100% accurate? I don't know, but hear the idea. That the, that the distance from the, an electron to the nucleus, in terms of the actual size and relative things, is like, from New York to Chicago. I mean, it's like, just when you get the perspective of the different 
amounts of space and the exactitude. It's, it's outrageous. Now, what throws us, since hopefully you hear the truth of that, that we live in a very coherent structure, a very coherent structure, what throws us? Why do we say things like, well, that's so random? Why do we, how dare we say such things, actually, if you think about it? And it's because interpersonal relations are very mysterious. And we have free choice and we do things that that baffles each other. And so, since that's our primary playing field, other people, that influences the way that we look at everything. So, we'll just be like, who knows? Like, wah. And that will be our fundamental perspective and outlook on the world. But if you think about it, that actually doesn't make much sense. Because we live amidst tremendous coherence, tremendous structure, tremendous structure. Now, with that in mind, listen to this. Moshe Rabbeinu, right? The, the greatest person who ever lived. And by the way, when, when Mashiach comes, when the Messiah comes, he'll be greater than Moshe in certain things, but not in prophecy. It's enshrined as just a foundation. The Rambam brings it. Moshe is the greatest prophet ever, and that includes Mashiach, by the way. That includes Mashiach. Mashiach will be greater in other things, but not in prophecy. So Moshe, who sees it so crystal clear, beyond crystal clear, right? And by the way, you know, I heard a great definition for genius. What is genius? It's someone who sees things as they actually are. In other words, we tend to think of, well, he's a genius. He thought of that. He imagined that. But if you think about, let's say, Einstein, for instance, Einstein saw, so to speak, the curvature of space. He saw it, and that's what it is. He didn't invent it. He just described what's actually there. All right, so now you have Moshe, who's a thousand Einsteins, who's seeing everything super clearly, and he's begging us on the last day of his life, listen to me. Please, listen to me. Listen to what I'm saying. Please. Alright, now I'm reading. This is uh, chapter 30, verse number 19 in the Tzavim. He says, I call the heavens and the earth today to bear witness. Alright? And what, is that, what does that mean? Meaning, and, and, and he goes on to say, To bear witness against you, I have placed life and death before you, blessing and curse, and you shall choose life so that you will live. Okay? He wants us to make the right decisions. You and your offspring. Right? To love Hashem your God, to listen to His voice and to cleave to Him. For He is your life and the length of your days to dwell upon the land that Hashem swore to your forefathers, to Avram, to Yitzchak, and to Yaakov, to give to them. Okay. So what does it mean that, that He's that he's saying all of these in the presence of heaven and earth. Okay? So Rashi gives two, two explanations. And, and here's the second one. So I'm going to read it, but you'll see it's, it's more or less what I was just saying. So, so, 
Okay, I'm gonna, okay, here it is. I call the heavens to bear witness. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Hashem said to Israel, Take a look at the heavens which I created to serve you. Might they have deviated from their character? Could it be that the circuit of the sun has not ascended from the east and given light to all the world, like the matter which is said, the sun rises and the sun sets? Take a look at the earth which I created to serve you. Might it have deviated from its character? Could it be that you, that, that you have sown, meaning planted, and it did not produce plants? Or might you have sown planted wheat, and it yielded barley? Now if these, which were made neither for reward or for loss, meaning the planets and the plants and things like that, if they are worthy, that they do not, if they are worthy, they do not receive reward. And if they sin, they do not receive punishment. If they didn't deviate from their character, you, who if you're worthy, will receive reward, and if you have sinned, you will receive punishment, how much more so should you not deviate from the way that you are meant to be? So, I'll just say that in my own words, but hopefully you got it. Which is, Moshe is saying, and Rashi is just kind of making it explicit, that this structure that we exist in, that everything follows the will of God, and they don't get reward or, or punishment. And they follow it exactly. So how much more so? It's nuts to think that we, who actually will get tremendous reward if we listen to God, aren't following the Word of God. Like, what sense does that make? And what sense does it make to think that we also don't have a path? Because remember, the mitzvot, the description of our actions, how we're supposed to live in this world, it's called halacha. Halacha means the flow. It means the walk. That's the divine flow. That's how human beings are supposed to act. That means this is our path through the world. Just like the planets have a flow and a path through this world. Just like the atoms and everything else has a flow and a path. I remember one time, you know, it's like I was walking to Shul on Shabbos, and I saw in someone's garden a certain flower. I don't remember what it was, but it was like a very striking flower. It was like blooming in their garden. And I looked at it because it was so pretty. I was like, oh, that's great. And then I walked like two blocks and I turned the corner, and I saw in another person's garden that exact same flower was also just blooming in their garden. And I thought, wow, that's so cool. These flowers are like, hey, got an appointment. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is, my, this is my time. You know, they weren't talking to each other. They just knew this is our time. And human beings, we also have a path. We have a Shabbos. We have, we have Rosh Hashanah. We have all these, we have Kashrus. We have all of these paths that are our paths. This is the Jews' path. And all human beings have a share in this. Kindness and love and charity. This is our path. We have a path. It's not like I have no path. So many people think I have no path. I'll make my own path. I'll pick and I'll choose and I'll make my path. Not because I'm arrogant. Not because I'm arrogant. But because I don't have a path. So what I'm telling you is, and what Moshe Rabbeinu is telling us, is that we have a path. 
Don't think for a second that you don't have a path. Planets have a path. Flowers have a path. You also have a path. The only difference is, unlike planets and unlike barley, you have free choice. And that's your greatness, that's your crown, that's your glory. That you have the ability to choose to do the right thing. That's your greatness. So, Happy New Year. (laughs) Hashem should bless us, you know. You know, there's so many people that it's like, let me just sort of act this out for a moment, and it's, this will be kind of hard to visualize if you're listening, but, you know, the future is that way. The future, the future is that way. And we have to turn around and walk into the future. We have to walk into the future and understand that on some level, the future is unwritten. And we have to walk into the future with this concept of Ram, not Mar, right? Of exaltedness. And to walk into the unknown and to make it beautiful. So many of us do the following. We walk into the future this way. Let's say that's the future behind me. They walk with their backs into the future. In other words, all they're doing is they're bringing their past into the future. And they're just extending their past into the future. And they're keeping the future their past instead of turning their future into their future. We can't afford to go through life as imitations of ourselves. God gives us another year. He gives us a brand new opening. A brand new opening for a new realm of beginnings. Let's take advantage of that. Let's imagine what we could be. Let's be great. Okay, Happy New Year.